Book Three, Chapter Four, of The Old Wife's Tale, by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale, by Arnold Bennett. Book Three, Sophia. CHAPTER Four, A CRISIS FOR GERALD One, For a time there existed in the minds of both Gerald and Sophia the remarkable notion that twelve thousand pounds represented the infinity of wealth, that this sum possessed special magical properties which rendered it insensible to the process of subtraction. It seemed impossible that twelve thousand pounds, while continually getting less, could ultimately quite disappear. The notion lived longer in the mind of Gerald than in that of Sophia, for Gerald would never look at a disturbing fact, whereas Sophia's gaze was morbidly fascinated by such phenomena. In a life devoted to travel and pleasure, Gerald meant not to spend more than six hundred a year, the interest on his fortune. Six hundred a year is less than two pounds a day, yet Gerald never paid less than two pounds a day in hotel bills alone. He was hoping that he was living on a thousand a year, had a secret fear that he might be spending fifteen hundred, and was really spending about two thousand five hundred. Still, the remarkable notion of the inexhaustibility of twelve thousand pounds always reassured him. The faster the money went, the more vigorously this notion flourished in Gerald's mind. When twelve had unaccountably dwindled to three, Gerald suddenly decided that he must act, and in a few months he lost two thousand on the Paris Bourse. The adventure frightened him, and in his panic he scattered a couple of hundred in a frenzy of high living. But even with only twenty thousand francs left out of three hundred thousand, he held closely to the belief that natural laws would, in his case, somehow be suspended. He had heard of men who were once rich, begging bread and sweeping crossings, but he felt quite secure against such risks by simple virtue of the axiom that he was he. However, he meant to assist this axiom by efforts to earn money. When these continued to fail, he tried to assist the axiom by borrowing money, but he found that his uncle had definitely done with him. He would have assisted the axiom by stealing money, but he had neither the nerve nor the knowledge to be a swindler. He was not even sufficiently expert to cheat at cards. He had thought in thousands— now he began to think in hundreds, in tens, daily and hourly. He paid two hundred francs in railway fares in order to live economically in a village, and shortly afterwards another two hundred francs in railway fares in order to live economically in Paris. And to celebrate the arrival in Paris, and the definite commencement of an era of strict economy and serious search for a livelihood, he spent a hundred francs on a dinner at the Maison Dorée, and two balcony stores at the gymnase. In brief, he omitted nothing, no act, no resolve, no self-deception, of the typical fool in his situation, always convinced that his difficulties and his wisdom were quite exceptional. In May 1870, on an afternoon, he was ranging nervously to and fro in a three-cornered bedroom of a little hotel at the angle of the Rue Fontaine and the Rue Laval now the Rue Victor Masse, within half a minute of the Boulevard de Clichy. This had come to that, 
an exchange of the Grand Boulevard for the Boulevard Extérieur. Sophia sat on a chair at the grimy window, glancing down in idle disgust of life at the cliché Odéon omnibus, which was casting off its tip-horse at the corner of the Rue Chaptal. The noise of petty, hurried traffic over the bossy paving-stones was deafening. The locality was not one to correspond with an ideal. There was too much humanity crowded into those narrow, hilly streets. Humanity seemed to be bulging out at the windows of the high houses. Gerald healed his pride by saying that this was, after all, the real Paris, and that the cookery was as good as could be got anywhere, pay what you would. He seldom ate a meal in the little salons on the first floor, without becoming ecstatic upon the cookery. To hear him he might have chosen the hotel on its superlative merits, without regard to expense. And with his air of use and custom, he did indeed look like a connoisseur of Paris, who knew better than to herd with vulgar tourists in the pens of the Madeleine quarter. He was dressed with some distinction. Good clothes, when put to the test, survive a change of fortune, as a Roman arch survives the luxury of a departed empire. Only his collar, large V-shaped front, and wristbands, which bore ineffaceable signs of cheap laundering, reflected the shadow of impending disaster. He glanced sideways, stealthily, at Sophia. She, too, was still dressed with distinction, in the robe of Brackfail, the cashmere shawl, and the little black hat with its falling veil. There was no apparent symptom of beggary. She would have been judged as just one of those women who content themselves with few clothes but good, and greatly aided by nature, make a little go a long way. Good black will last for eternity. It discloses no secrets of modification and mending, and it is not transparent. At last, Gerald, resuming a suspended conversation, said, as it were doggedly, "'I tell you I haven't got five francs altogether, and you can feel my pockets if you like.' added the habitual liar in him, feeling incredulity. "'Well, and, and what do you expect me to do?' Sophia inquired. The accent, at once ironic and listless, in which she put this question, showed that strange and vital things had happened to Sophia in the four years which had elapsed since her marriage. It did really seem to her, indeed, that the Sophia whom Gerald had espoused was dead and gone, and that another Sophia had come into her body. So intensely conscious was she of a fundamental change in herself, under the stress of continuous experience. And though this was but a seeming, though she was still the same Sophia, more fully disclosed, it was a true seeming. Indisputably more beautiful than when Gerald had unwillingly made her his legal wife, she was now nearly twenty-four and looked perhaps somewhat older than her age. Her frame was firmly set, her waist thicker, neither slim nor stout. The lips were rather hard, and she had a habit of tightening her mouth, on the same provocation as sends a snail into its shell. No trace was left of immature gawkiness in her gestures, or of simplicity in her intonations. She was a woman of commanding and slightly arrogant charm, not in the least degree the charm of innocence and ingenuousness. Her eyes were the eyes of one who has lost her illusions too violently and too completely. Her gaze, coldly comprehending, implied familiarity with the abjectness of human nature. Gerald had begun and had finished her education. He had not ruined her, as a bad professor may ruin a fine voice, because her moral force immeasurably exceeded his. He had unwittingly produced a masterpiece, but it was a tragic masterpiece 
Sophia was such a woman as, by a mere glance as she utters an opinion, will make a man say to himself, half in desire and half in alarm, lest she reads him too, "'By Jove, she must have been through a thing or two. She knows what people are.' The marriage was, of course, a calamitous folly. From the very first, from the moment when the commercial traveller had, with incomparable rash fatuity, thrown the paper pellet over the counter, Sophia's awakening common sense had told her that in yielding to her instinct she was sowing misery and shame for herself. But she had gone on, as if under a spell. It had needed the irretrievableness of flight from home to begin the breaking of the trance. Once fully awakened out of the trance, she had recognised her marriage for what it was. She had made neither the best nor the worst of it. She had accepted Gerald as one accepts a climate. She saw again and again that he was irreclaimably a fool and a prodigy of irresponsibleness. She tolerated him, now with sweetness, now bitterly, accepting always his caprices, and never permitting herself to have wishes of her own. She was ready to pay the price of pride and of a moment's imbecility with a lifetime of self-repression. It was high, but it was the price. She had acquired nothing but an exceptionally good knowledge of the French language, she soon learnt to scorn Gerald's glib maltreatment of the tongue, and she had conserved nothing but her dignity. She knew that Gerald was sick of her, that he would have danced for joy to be rid of her, that he was constantly unfaithful, that he had long since ceased to be excited by her beauty. She knew also that at bottom he was a little afraid of her. Here was her sole moral consolation. The thing that sometimes struck her as surprising was that he had not abandoned her, simply and crudely walked off one day, and forgotten to take her with him. They hated each other, but in different ways. She loathed him, and he resented her. "'What do I expect you to do?' he repeated after her. "'Why don't you write home to your people and get some money out of them?' Now that he had said what was in his mind, he faced her with a bullying swagger. Had he been a bigger man, he might have tried the effect of physical bullying on her. One of his numerous reasons for resenting her was that she was the taller of the two. She made no reply. "'Now you needn't turn pale and begin all that fuss over again. What I'm suggesting is a perfectly reasonable thing. If I haven't got money, I haven't got it. I can't invent it.' She perceived that he was ready for one of their periodical tempestuous quarrels— but that day she felt too tired and unwell to quarrel. His warning against a repetition of fuss had reference to the gastric dizziness from which he had been suffering for two years. It would take her usually after a meal. She did not swoon, but her head swam, and she could not stand. She would sink down wherever she happened to be, and her face, alarmingly white, murmur faintly, "'My salts!' Within five minutes the attack had gone, and left no trace." She had been through one just after lunch. He resented this affliction. He detested being compelled to hand the smelling-bottle to her, and he would have avoided doing so if her pallor did not always alarm him. Nothing but this pallor convinced him that the attacks were not a deep ruse to impress him. His attitude invariably implied that she could cure the malady if she chose, but that through obstinacy she did not choose. "'Are you going to have the decency to answer my question, or aren't you?' "'What question?' Her vibrating voice was low and restrained. "'Will you write to your people?' "'For money?' 
The sarcasm of her tone was diabolic. She could not have kept the sarcasm out of her tone. She did not attempt to keep it out. She cared little if it whipped him to fury. Did he imagine, seriously, that she would be capable of going on her knees to her family? She? Was he unaware that his wife was the proudest and most obstinate woman on earth, that all her behaviour to him was the expression of her pride and her obstinacy? Ill and weak though she felt, she marshalled together all the forces of her character to defend her resolve, never, never to eat the bread of humiliation. She was absolutely determined to be dead to her family. Certainly, one December, several years previously, she had seen English Christmas cards in an English shop in the Rue de Rivoli, and in a sudden gush of tenderness towards Constance, she had dispatched a coloured greeting to Constance and her mother, and having initiated the custom, she had continued it. That was not like asking a kindness, it was bestowing a kindness. But except for the annual card, she was dead to St. Luke's Square. She was one of those daughters who disappear and are not discussed in the family circle. The thought of her immense foolishness, the little tender thoughts of Constance, some flitting souvenir, full of unwilling admiration, of a regal gesture of her mother, these things only steeled her against any sort of resurrection after death. And he was urging her to write home for money. Why, she would not even have paid a visit in splendour to St. Luke's Square. Never should they know what she had suffered, and especially her Aunt Harriet, from whom she had stolen. "'Will you write to your people?' he demanded yet again, emphasising and separating each word. "'No,' she said shortly, with terrible disdain. "'Why not?' "'Because I won't.' The curling line of her lips, as they closed on each other, said all the rest, all the cruel truths about his unspeakable, inane, coarse follies his laziness, his excessive, his lies, his deceptions, his bad faith, his truculence, his improvidence, his shameful waste and ruin of his life and hers. She doubted whether he realised his baseness and her wrongs, but if he could not read them in her silent contumely, she was too proud to recite them to him. She had never complained, save in uncontrolled moments of anger. "'If that's the way you're going to talk, all right,' he snapped furious. Evidently he was baffled. She kept silence. She was determined to see what he would do in the face of her inaction. "'You know I'm not joking,' he pursued. "'We shall starve.' "'Very well,' she agreed. "'We shall starve.' She watched him surreptitiously, and she was almost sure that he really had come to the end of his tether. His voice, which never alone convinced, carried a sort of conviction now— he was penniless. In four years he had squandered twelve thousand pounds, and had nothing to show for it except an enfeebled digestion and a tragic figure of a wife. One small point of satisfaction there was, and all the banes in her clutched at it, and tried to suck satisfaction from it. Their manner of travelling about from hotel to hotel had made it impossible for Gerald to run up debts. A few debts he might have, unknown to her, but they could not be serious. So they looked at one another, in hatred and despair. The inevitable had arrived. For months she had fronted it in bravado, not concealing from herself that it lay in waiting. For years he had been sure that, though the inevitable might happen to others, it could not happen to him. There it was. 
He was conscious of a heavy weight in his stomach, and she of a general numbness, enwrapping her fatigue. Even then he could not believe that it was true, this disaster. As for Sophia, she was reconciling herself with bitter philosophy to the eccentricities of fate. Who would have dreamed that she, a young girl brought up, etc., her mother could not have improved the occasion more uncompromisingly than Sophia did, behind that disdainful mask. "'Well, if that's it,' Gerald exploded at length, puffing, and he puffed out of the room and was gone in a second. 2. She languidly picked up a book the moment Gerald had departed, and tried to prove to herself that she was sufficiently in command of her nerves to read. For a long time reading had been her chief solace, but she could not read. She glanced round the inhospitable chamber, and thought of the hundreds of rooms, some splendid and some vile, but all arid in their unwelcoming aspect, through which she had passed in her progress from mad exaltation to calm and cold disgust. The ceaseless din of the street annoyed her jaded ears, and a great wave of desire for peace, peace of no matter what kind, swept through her, and then her deep distrust of Gerald reawakened. In spite of his seriously desperate air, which had a quality of sincerity quite new in her experience of him, she could not be entirely sure that in asserting utter penury he was not, after all, merely using a trick to get rid of her. She sprang up, threw the book on the bed, and seized her gloves. She would follow him, if she could. She would do what she had never done before. She would spy on him. Fighting against her lassitude, she descended the long winding stairs, and peeped forth from the doorway into the street. The ground floor of the hotel was a wine-shop. The stout landlord was lightly flicking one of his three little yellow tables that stood on the pavement. He smiled with his customary benevolence, and silently pointed in the direction of the Rue Notre-Dame de Lorette. She saw Gerald down there in the distance. He was smoking a cigar. He seemed to be a little man without a care. The smoke of the cigar came first round his left cheek and then round his right, sailing away into nothing. He walked with a gay spring, but not quickly, flourishing his cane as freely as the traffic of the pavement would permit, glancing into all the shop windows, and into the eyes of all the women under forty. This was not at all the same man as had, a moment ago, been spitting angry menaces at her in the bedroom of the hotel. It was a fellow of blithe charm, ripe for any adventurous joys that destiny had to offer. Supposing he turned round and saw her? If he turned round and saw her, and asked her what she was doing there in the street, she would tell him plainly, "'I am following you, to find out what you do.' But he did not turn. He went straight forward, deviating at the church, where the crowd became thicker, into the Rue du Faubourg Montmartre, and so to the boulevard, which he crossed. The whole city seemed excited and vivacious. Cannons boomed in slow succession, and flags were flying. Sophia had no conception of the significance of those guns, for, though she read a great deal, she never read a newspaper. The idea of opening a newspaper never occurred to her. But she was accustomed to the feverish atmosphere of Paris. She had lately seen regiments of cavalry flashing and prancing in the Luxembourg gardens, and had much admired the fine picture. She accepted the booming as another expression of the high spirit that had to find vent somehow in this feverish empire. She so accepted it, and forgot it, using all the panorama of the capital as a dim background for her exacerbated egoism. 
she was obliged to walk slowly, because Gerald walked slowly. A beautiful woman, or any woman not positively hag-like or venerable, who walks slowly in the streets of Paris, becomes at once the cause of inconvenient desires, as representing the main objective on earth, always transcending in importance politics and affairs. Just as a true patriotic Englishman cannot be too busy to run after a fox, so a Frenchman is always ready to forsake all in order to follow a woman whom he has never before set eyes on. Many men thought twice about her, with her romantic Saxon mystery of temperament and her Parisian clothes. But all refrained from affronting her, not in the least out of respect for the gloom in her face, but from an expert conviction that those rapt eyes were fixed immovably on another male. She walked unscathed amid the frothing hounds as though protected by a spell. On the south side of the boulevard, Gerald proceeded down the Rue Montmartre, and then turned suddenly into the Rue Croissant. Sophia stopped and asked the price of some combs which were exposed outside a little shop. Then she went on, boldly passing the end of the Rue Croissant. No shadow of Gerald. She saw the signs of newspapers all along the street, Le Bien Public, La Presse Libre, La Patrie. There was a creamery at the corner. She entered it and asked for a cup of chocolate and sat down. She wanted to drink coffee, but every doctor had forbidden coffee to her, on account of her attacks of dizziness. Then, having ordered chocolate, she felt that on this occasion, when she had need of strength in her great fatigue, only coffee could suffice her, and she changed the order. She was close to the door, and Gerald could not escape her vigilance if he emerged at that end of the street. She drank the coffee with greedy satisfaction, and waited in the creamery till she began to feel conspicuous there. And then Gerald went by the door within six feet of her. He turned the corner, and continued his descent of the Rue Montmartre. She paid for her coffee, and followed the chase. Her blood seemed to be up. Her lips were tightened, and her thought was, "'Wherever he goes, I'll go, and I don't care what happens.' She despised him. She felt herself above him. She felt that somehow, since quitting the hotel, he had been gradually growing more and more vile and meat to be exterminated. She imagined infamies as to the Rue Croissant. There was no obvious ground for this intensifying of her attitude towards him. It was merely the result of the chase.' All that could be definitely charged against him was the smoking of a cigar. He stepped into a tobacco shop, and came out with a longer cigar than the first one, a more expensive article, stripped off its collar and lighted it, as a millionaire might have lighted it. This was the man who swore that he did not possess five francs. She tracked him as far as the Rue de Rivoli, and then lost him. There were vast surging crowds in the Rue de Rivoli, and much bunting, and soldiers, and gesticulatory policemen. The general effect of the street was that all things were brightly waving in the breeze. She was caught in the crowd as in the current of a stream, and when she tried to sidle out of it into a square, a row of smiling policemen barred her passage. She was part of the traffic that they had to regulate. She drifted till the Louvre came into view. After all, Gerald had only strolled forth to see the sight of the day, whatever it might be. She knew not what it was. She had no curiosity about it. In the middle of all that thickening mass of humanity, staring with one accord at the vast monument of royal and imperial vanities, she thought, with her characteristic grimness, of the sacrifice of her whole career as a schoolteacher for the chance of seeing Gerald once a quarter in the shop. 
She gloated over that, as a sick appetite will gloat over tainted food, and she saw the shop and the curve of the stairs up to the showroom, and the pier-glass in the showroom. Then the guns began to boom again, and splendid carriages swept one after another from under a majestic archway, and glittered westward down a lane of spotless, splendid uniforms. The carriages were laden with still more splendid uniforms, and with enchanting toilettes. Sophia, in her modestly stylish black, mechanically noticed how much easier it was for attired women to sit in a carriage now that crinolines had gone. That was the sole impression made upon her by this glimpse of the last fate of the Napoleonic Empire. She knew not that the supreme pillars of imperialism were exhibiting themselves before her, and that the eyes of those uniforms and those toilettes were full of the legendary beauties of Eugenie, and their ears echoing to the long phrases of Napoleon the Third about his gratitude to his people for their confidence in him, as shown by the plebiscite, and about the ratification of constitutional reforms guaranteeing order, and about the empire having been strengthened at its base, and about showing force by moderation, and envisaging the future without fear, and about the bosom of peace and liberty, and the eternal continuance of his dynasty. She just wondered vaguely what was afoot. When the last carriage had rolled away, and the guns and acclamations had ceased, the crowd at length began to scatter. She was carried by it into the Place du Palais-Royal, and in a few moments she managed to withdraw into the Rue des Bons-Enfants, and was free. The coins in her purse amounted to three sous, and therefore, though she felt exhausted to the point of illness, she had to return to the hotel on foot. Very slowly she crawled upwards in the direction of the boulevard, through the expiring gaiety of the city. Near the bourse a fiacre overtook her, and in the fiacre were Gerald and a woman. Gerald had not seen her. He was talking eagerly to his ornate companion. All his body was alive. The fiacre was out of sight in a moment. But Sophia judged instantly the grade of the woman, who was evidently of the discreet class that frequented the big shops of an afternoon with something of their own to sell. Sophia's grimness increased. The pace of the fiacre, her fatigued body, Gerald's delightful, careless vivacity, the attractive streaming veil of the nice, modest courtesan, everything conspired to increase it. 3. Gerald returned to the bedroom which contained his wife and all else that he owned in the world at about nine o'clock that evening. Sophia was in bed. She had been driven to bed by weariness. She would have preferred to sit up to receive her husband, even if it had meant sitting up all night, but her body was too heavy for her spirit. She lay in the dark. She had eaten nothing. Gerald came straight into the room. He struck a match, which burned blue, with a stench for several seconds, and then gave a clear yellow flame. He lit a candle, and saw his wife. "'Oh,' he said, "'you're there, are you?' She offered no reply. "'Won't speak, eh?' he said. "'Agreeable sort of wife. <laughs> well, have you made up your mind to do as I told you? I've come back especially to know.' She still did not speak. He sat down with his hat on, and stuck out his feet, wagging them to and fro on the heels. "'I'm quite without money,' he went on, "'and I'm sure your people will be glad to lend us a bit till I get some, especially as it's a question of you starving as well as me. If I had enough to pay your fares to Bursley, I'd pack you off. 
but I haven't. She could only hear his exasperating voice. The end of the bed was between her eyes and his. "'Liar!' she said, with uncompromising distinctness. The word reached him, barbed with all the poison of her contempt and disgust. There was a pause. "'Oh, I'm a liar, am I? Thanks. I lied enough to get you, I'll admit. But you never complained of that.' I remember beginning the new year well with a thumping lie just to have a sight of you, my vixen. But you didn't complain then. I took you with only the clothes on your back. And I've spent every cent I had on you. And now I'm spun. You call me a liar. She said nothing. However, he went on, this is going to come to an end, this is. He rose, changed the position of the candle, putting it on a chest of drawers and then drew his trunk from the wall, and knelt in front of it. She gathered that he was packing his clothes. At first she did not comprehend his reference to beginning the new year. Then his meaning revealed itself. That story to her mother about having been attacked by ruffians at the bottom of King Street had been an invention, a ruse to account plausibly for his presence on her mother's doorstep, and she had never suspected that the story was not true. In spite of her experience of his lying, she had never suspected that that particular statement was a lie. What a simpleton she was! There was a continual movement in the room for about a quarter of an hour. Then a key turned in the lock of the trunk. His head popped up over the foot of the bed. "'This isn't a joke, you know,' he said. She kept silence. I give you one more chance. Will you write to your mother, or Constance, if you like, or won't you? She scorned to reply in any way. I'm your husband, he said, and it's your duty to obey me, particularly in an affair like this. I order you to write to your mother. The corners of her lips turned downwards. Angered by her mute obstinacy, he broke away from the bed with a sudden gesture. "'You do as you like,' he cried, putting on his overcoat, "'and I shall do as I like. "'You can't say I haven't warned you. "'It's your own deliberate choice, mind you. "'Whatever happens to you, you've brought it on yourself.' She would not speak a word, not even to insist that she was indisposed. He pushed his trunk outside the door and returned to the bed. "'You understand?' he said menacingly. "'I'm off.' She looked up at the foul ceiling. Hm, he sniffed, bringing his reserves of pride to combat the persistent silence that was damaging his dignity. And he went off, sticking his head forward like a pugilist. Here, she muttered, you're forgetting this. He turned. She stretched her hand to the night-table and held up a red circlet. What is it? "'It's the bit of paper off the cigar you bought in the Rue Montmartre this afternoon,' she answered in a significant tone. He hesitated, then swore violently and bounced out of the room. He had made her suffer, but she was almost repaid for everything by that moment of cruel triumph. She exulted in it, and never forgot it. Five minutes later, the gloomy menial in felt slippers and alpaca jacket, who seemed to pass the whole of his life flitting in and out of bedrooms like a rabbit in a warren, carried Gerald's trunk downstairs. She recognised the peculiar tread of his slippers. Then there was a knock at the door. 
The landlady entered, actuated by a legitimate curiosity. "'Madame is suffering?' the landlady began. Sophia refused offers of food and nursing. "'Madame knows without doubt that monsieur has gone away?' "'Has he paid the bill?' Sophia asked bluntly. "'But yes, madame, till to-morrow.' "'Then, madame, has want of nothing?' "'If you will extinguish the candle,' said Sophia. He had deserted her then. All this, she reflected, listening in the dark to the ceaseless rattle of the street, because mother and Constance wanted to see the elephant, and I had to go into father's room. I should never have caught sight of him from the drawing-room window. 4. She passed a night of physical misery, exasperated by the tireless rattling vitality of the street. She kept saying to herself, "'I'm all alone now, and I'm going to be ill. I am ill.' She saw herself dying in Paris, and heard the expressions of facile sympathy and idle curiosity drawn forth by the sight of the dead body of this foreign woman in a little Paris hotel. She reached the stage, in the gradual excruciation of her nerves, when she was obliged to concentrate her agonised mind on an intense and painful expectancy of the next new noise, which, when it came, increased her torture and decreased her strength to support it. She went through all the interminable dilatoriness of the dawn, from the moment when she could scarcely discern the window, to the moment when she could read the word BOP on the red circlet of paper which had tossed all night on the sea of the counterpane. She knew she would never sleep again. She could not imagine herself asleep. And then she was startled by a sound that seemed to clash with the rest of her impressions. It was a knocking at the door. With a start, she perceived that she must have been asleep. "'Enter,' she murmured. There entered the menial in alpaca. His waxen face showed a morose commiseration. He noiselessly approached the bed. He seemed to have none of the characteristics of a man— but to be a creature infinitely mysterious and aloof from humanity, and held out to Sophia a visiting-card in his grey hand. It was Chirac's card. "'Monsieur asked for Monsieur,' said the waiter, "'and then, as Monsieur had gone away, he demanded to see Madame. He says it is very important.' Her heart jumped, partly in vague alarm, and partly with a sense of relief at this chance of speaking to someone whom she knew— she tried to reflect rationally. "'What time is it?' she inquired. Eleven o'clock, madame.' This was surprising. The fact that it was eleven o'clock destroyed the remains of her self-confidence. How could it be eleven o'clock, with the dawn scarcely finished? "'He says it is very important,' repeated the waiter, imperturbably and solemnly. "'Will madame see him an instant?' Between resignation and anticipation, she said, "'Yes.' "'It is well, madame,' said the waiter, disappearing without a sound. She sat up and managed to drag her matinee from a chair and put it around her shoulders. Then she sank back from weakness, physical and spiritual. She hated to receive Chirac in a bedroom, and particularly in that bedroom.' but the hotel had no public room except the dining-room which began to be occupied after eleven o'clock moreover she could not possibly get up yes on the whole she was pleased to see chirac he was almost her only acquaintance assuredly the only being whom she could by any stretch of meaning call a friend in the whole of europe 
Gerald and she had wandered to and fro, skimming always over the real life of nations, and never penetrating into it. There was no place for them, because they had made none, with the exception of Chirac, whom an accident of business had thrown into Gerald's company years before. They had no social relations. Gerald was not a man to make friends. He did not seem to need friends, or at any rate to feel the want of them. But as chance had given him Chirac, he maintained the connection whenever they came to Paris. Sophia, of course, had not been able to escape from the solitude imposed by existence in hotels. Since her marriage she had never spoken to a woman in the way of intimacy, but once or twice she had approached intimacy with Chirac, whose wistful admiration for her always aroused into activity her desire to charm. Preceded by the menial, he came into the room hurriedly, apologetically, with an air of acute anxiety, and as he saw her lying on her back with flushed features, her hair disarranged, and only the grace of the silk ribbons of her matinee to mitigate the melancholy repulsiveness of her surroundings, that anxiety seemed to deepen. "'Dear madame,' he stammered, "'all my excuses.' He hastened to the bedside and kissed her hand, a little peak according to his custom. "'You are ill?' "'I have my migraine,' she said. "'You want Gerald?' "'Yes,' he said diffidently. "'He had promised. He has left me.' Sophia interrupted him in her weak and fatigued voice. She closed her eyes as she uttered the word. "'Left you?' He glanced around to be sure that the waiter had retired. "'Quitted me. Abandoned me. Last night.' "'Not possible,' he breathed. She nodded. She felt intimate with him. Like all secretive persons, she could be suddenly expansive at times. "'It is serious?' he questioned. "'All that is most serious,' she replied. "'And you ill! Ah, oh, the wretch! Ah, oh, the wretch! That, for example!' he waved his hat about. "'What is it you want, Chirac?' she demanded in a confidential tone. "'Eh, well—' said Chirac. You do not know where he has gone? No. What do you want? He was nervous. He fidgeted. She guessed that, though warm with sympathy for her plight, he was preoccupied by interests and apprehensions of his own. He did not refuse her request temporarily to leave the astonishing matter of her situation in order to discuss the matter of his visit. Eh, well— he came to me yesterday afternoon in the Rue Croissant to borrow some money. She understood then the object of Gerald's stroll on the previous afternoon. I hope you didn't lend him any, she said. Eh, well, it was like this. He said he ought to have received five thousand francs yesterday morning, but that he had had a telegram that it would not arrive until today, and he had need of five hundred francs at once. "'I had not five hundred francs.' He smiled sadly, as if to insinuate that he did not handle such sums. "'But I borrowed it from the cash-box of the journal. It is necessary, absolutely, that I should return it this morning.' He spoke with increased seriousness. "'Your husband said he would take a cab and bring me the money immediately on the arrival of the post this morning, about nine o'clock. Pardon me for deranging you with such a—' He stopped. She could see that he really was grieved to derange her, but that circumstances pressed. "'At my paper,' he murmured, "'it is not so easy as that to—in fine—' 
Gerald had genuinely been at his last franks. He had not lied when she thought he had lied. The nakedness of his character showed now. Instantly, upon the final and definite cessation of the lawful supply of money, he had set his wits to obtain money unlawfully. He had, in fact, simply stolen it from Chirac, with the ornamental addition of endangering Chirac's reputation and situation, as a sort of reward to Chirac for the kindness. And further, no sooner had he got hold of the money than it had intoxicated him, and he had yielded to the first fatuous temptation. He had no sense of responsibility, no scruple, and as for common prudence, had he not risked permanent disgrace and even prison for a paltry sum which he would certainly squander in two or three days? Yes, it was indubitable that he would stop at nothing, at nothing whatever. "'You did not know he was coming to me?' asked Chirac, pulling his short, silky brown beard. "'No,' Sapphire answered. Uh, "'But he said that you had charged him with your friendliness to me.' He nodded his head once or twice, sadly, but candidly accepting, in the quality of a Latin, the plain facts of human nature, reconciling himself to them at once. Sapphire revolted at this crowning detail of the structure of Gerald's rascality. "'It is fortunate that I can pay you,' she said. "'But,' he tried to protest, "'I have quite enough money.' She did not say this to screen Gerald, but merely from amour propre. She would not let Chirac think that she was the wife of a man bereft of all honour. And so she clothed Gerald with the rag of having, at any rate, not left her in destitution as well as in sickness.' Her assertion seemed a strange one, in view of the fact that he had abandoned her on the previous evening, that is to say, immediately after the borrowing from Chirac. But Chirac did not examine the statement. "'Perhaps he has the intention to send me the money. Perhaps, after all, he is now at the offices.' "'No,' said Sophia, "'he is gone. Will you go downstairs and wait for me? We will go together to Cook's office. It is English money I have.' "'Cook's?' he repeated. The word, now so potent, had then little significance. "'But you are ill. You cannot.' "'I feel better.' She did. Or rather she felt nothing except the power of her resolve to remove the painful anxiety from that wistful brow. The shame of the trick played on Chirac awakened new forces in her. She dressed in a physical torment, which, however, had no more reality than a nightmare— she searched in a place which even an inquisitive husband would not think of looking, and then, painfully, she descended the long stairs, holding to the rail which swam round and round her, carrying the whole staircase with it. After all, she thought, I can't be seriously ill, or I shouldn't have been able to get up and go out like this. I never guessed early this morning that I could do it. I can't possibly be as ill as I thought I was.' and in the vestibule she encountered Chirac's face, lightening at the sight of her, which proved to him that his deliverance was really to be accomplished. Uh, "'Permit me. It's all right,' she smiled, tottering. "'Get a cab.' It suddenly occurred to her that she might as easily have given him the money in English notes. He could have changed them. But she had not thought. Her brain would not operate. She was dreaming and waking together. He helped her into the cab. Five. In the Bureau de Change there was a little knot of English people, with naive, romantic, and honest faces, quite different from the faces outside in the street, 
no corruption in those faces, but a sort of wondering and infantile sincerity, rather out of its element, and lost in a land too unsophisticated, seeming to belong to an earlier age. Sophia liked their tourist stare, and their plain and ugly clothes. She longed to be back in England, longed for a moment with violence, drowning in that desire. The English clerk behind his brass bars took her notes, and carefully examined them, one by one. She watched him, not entirely convinced of his reality, and thought, vaguely, of the detestable morning when she had abstracted the notes from Gerald's pocket. She was filled with pity for the simple ignorant Sophia of those days, the Sophia who still had a few ridiculous illusions concerning Gerald's character. Often since she had been tempted to break into the money, but she had always withstood the temptation, saying to herself that an hour of more urgent need would come. It had come. She was proud of her firmness, of the force of will which had enabled her to reserve the fund intact. The clerk gave her a keen look, and then asked her how she would take the French money, and she saw the notes falling down one after another on the counter as the clerk separated them with a snapping sound of the paper. Chirac was beside her. "'Does that make the count?' she said, having pushed towards him five hundred-franc notes. "'I should not know how to thank you,' he said, accepting the notes. "'Truly!' His joy was unmistakably eager. He had had a shock and a fright, and he now saw the danger past. He could return to the cashier of his newspaper, and fling down the money with a lordly and careless air, as if to say, "'When it is a question of these English, one can always be sure.' But first he would escort her to the hotel. She declined. She did not know why, for he was her sole point of moral support in all France. He insisted. She yielded. So she turned her back with regret on that little English oasis in the Sahara of Paris, and staggered to the fiacre. And now that she had done what she had to do, she lost control of her body, and reclined flaccid and inert. Chirac was evidently alarmed. He did not speak, but glanced at her from time to time, with eyes full of fear. The carriage appeared to her to be swimming amid waves over great depths. Then she was aware of a heavy weight against her shoulder. She had slipped down upon Chirac, unconscious. End of Book Three, Chapter Four